0: And if you do have a Bible with you, you may want to keep it open to Romans 12. We will look at Mark 8 as well. But actually, we're starting a new terms teaching series in Romans 12. And the theme is living sacrifices, as verse 1 puts it. As we get going, though, I want to tell you about one of my favorite comedians and podcasters, Adam Buxton. Do any of you know Adam Buxton's podcast? It's brilliant, and I've been listening to his podcast since I was a teenager. And in one of his books that he recently wrote, he talks about what it was like to lose his father. He has a moment where he talks about how his father, dying of an aggressive cancer, came to stay with his family. And one night, as they were dealing with complications from the medication, some side effects, they had this conversation. It should come up on the screen. Buxton's father said, occasionally, I feel that I'm absolutely irrelevant." Adam, his son, replied, "'Who is relevant?' "'Ah, that's the big question,' his father said. "'That's where it starts to be frightening.'" Why would you be frightened by it? Because we spend so much time and effort making sure that the state of our being is what it ought to be, that it becomes very unsettling if you start suspecting that it doesn't very much matter. That's the big question in life. What is your life? What is my life? Does it matter? Will it be irrelevant in the end? It's the kind of question that will keep you up at night. It's the kind of question that we spend our lives trying to avoid with all our busyness and our routine, but can't avoid forever. It's the kind of question you'll ask yourself no matter what your religious beliefs or your personal experiences or your social background? What is my life? How would it matter in the grand scheme of things? How should I live so that it matters? Paul has an unexpected and beautiful answer. He says, make your life a living sacrifice. That's how to live in a way that matters. Romans 12 verse 1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul says, become a living sacrifice. Offer yourself entirely to God, all that you are and all that you have right down to your body and the things you do in it. And offer yourself in an ongoing way, not just like an animal sacrifice, offer it, kill it, done, but a sacrifice that's offered through your whole life as you live it, become a living sacrifice. As I say, that's our theme for the rest of this term. We'll be thinking about what it looks like to live those lives as living sacrifices. And tonight, as we look at Romans 12 and Mark 8, I want us to think about why we should do that. Why is living as a living sacrifice a fruitful way to live? I have three reasons for us. And here's the first one. Why be a living sacrifice? Because it means living in line with the truth. Living in line with the truth. What truth? The truth Jesus tells us in that reading from Mark. Verse 35, he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Becoming a living sacrifice is all about obeying Jesus, following the truth that he tells us, and giving up our lives for him, losing them as he commands us to do. Now, why does Jesus want us to lose our lives for him? Well, it's so that we save them in the end. That's why he's calling us to do it. He's actually telling us the truth about life in our world. If you keep hold of your life and keep Jesus at arm's length, in the end, you will lose your life forever. But the mystery is, if you lose your life for him, give it over to him, you will have it and have it to the full. Now, that sounds very confrontational, doesn't it? Let's be honest. It's it's challenging to hear Jesus talk like this. It's very black and white. Jesus, where are the shades of grey? It's not very nuanced of you, is it? Well, the reason why Jesus sounds so harsh to our ears is because each one of us has believed a lie. And so the truth, cutting across that lie, feels like such a confrontation. See, there is a lie back in Genesis 3 that poisoned everything the moment we believed it. You can turn back there to see it if you want. The serpent tells a lie to Adam and Eve and from that point everything goes wrong. I'll paraphrase but the serpent is basically saying the reason why God doesn't want you to eat the fruit from the tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that he doesn't want you to become like him. When you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. You'll, you'll get all the good things that he's withholding from you because God is not out for your good. That's the lie the serpent tells. and It's the lie we keep on believing that happiness will always be out of reach as long as God is in the picture, that he's an obstacle to our fulfillment and that he has to go. It's a lie that we believe and, and ruins everything. And by the way, it's, it's blatantly untrue. It's untrue even in the pages of Genesis because God is not a withholding God. He puts us in this beautiful creation full of good things to enjoy. He makes us in his image. In other words, as much like him as it's possible for a creature to be. So what's the devil talking about saying you'll become like him? He's made us mysteriously like him. It's a blatant untruth. It's a bit like those cigarette ads from the 50s that tell you on medical advice that smoking is actually good for you. Terrible lies. And when you see those ads today, it makes you cringe, but also makes you sad. because you realize that that's not only wrong, but it's also damaging to believe. But this is the lie that we keep on believing almost wired into human nature to suspect that God is out to make us smaller and that life with him will somehow mean less for us. It's a poison that's taken hold in our hearts, in our world. And that's why what Jesus says sounds so hard to our ears. That's what makes Jesus' call so radical. It's the truth in a world of lies. He calls us to become living sacrifices and so live in line with the truth. Jesus says, you'll find your life by losing it for me. He says, only a life surrendered to me is one in which you'll find perfect freedom. He says, there is no way to the crown except through my cross. Are any of you fans of the Terminator films? Maybe? Maybe. I don't know. I won't do it in the Arnie voice because I think that would be deeply offensive to any Austrians here. But you know that classic line, come with me if you want to live. Well, Jesus has his version of that. Come with me and die with me if you want to live. Because that's his invitation. But you see, the amazing thing is that this is not just words with Jesus. In other religious traditions, the religious teachers might give you a paradox to make you think, to chew on. They might give you a mantra in Hinduism to repeat or a koan in Zen Buddhism to sort of puzzle over. But you see, with Jesus, that's not what we have here. He's not just giving us a mysterious paradox where we think, death and life and wonder how that works. No, he's not just talking. This is something he actually did. Jesus chose to become a sacrifice for us. He chose to die and then rise again. And so we know that we're not fools to follow him to his cross because we know that those footsteps lead out of an empty tomb. We're not fools to die to ourselves with Jesus because we know through his resurrection it means coming to life, never ending life with him. Jesus is not just talk, this is something he did for us. This is an embodied truth. That's why we should be a living sacrifice because it means living in line with that truth. That takes me to my second reason. Why be a living sacrifice? Because it means living in response to God's mercy. Living in response to God's mercy. Have a look at verse one again. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Paul begins, therefore. What is he doing? Well, when you use that word, what you're saying is because of what's gone before, this. And what's gone before is the whole of Romans 1 to 11. Paul's harking back to all of that, to the goodness and love, the undeserved kindness of God that we've experienced in Jesus. And he hammers that home in view of God's mercy. God's mercy gets the first word in all that we do as Christians, because God made the first move. God took the initiative. So important for all of us to understand this. Becoming a living sacrifice is not step one in how we impress God. It's our response to what God was pleased to do for us in Jesus. It flows entirely from what he's done. All we do is a response. So yes, we offer ourselves to God. We become living sacrifices entirely given over to him, but we do it In view of God's mercy, you can give yourself totally to God because in Jesus, He has already given Himself totally for you. Now, there are important differences between our self offering and Jesus's self offering. We're living sacrifices because someone has already died Him. As we heard in Romans 8 last term, Our sins were condemned in him. That's why there's no condemnation for us who are in him. He became a dying sacrifice on the cross so that we can be living sacrifices today. He chose to face the condemnation we deserve so that our lives can become holy and pleasing to him. Big differences between his sacrifice and our sacrifice. And we need to keep that in mind because the Christian life is not first and foremost what we do for God, but all about what he has done for us. Brothers and sisters, if we forget this, then everything we hear this term about being living sacrifices will be too hard to hear. If we lose sight of God's mercy, then costly obedience will be impossible for us, and that lie that God is not out for our good will be so persuasive And we will never feel like giving ourselves to him. When we forget all he's given up for us in Jesus, we won't feel like we're able to give anything up ourselves. This term, we're going to get concrete as we go through Romans 12, as we think about being living sacrifices. And in our teaching, God is going to put his finger on places in our lives that might need to change. He's going to speak to us about costly obedience and perhaps cut against our comfort and our choices. My prayer is that all throughout, the Holy Spirit might keep God's mercy in view. At every moment when we hear his call to obey, the Holy Spirit would anchor in our hearts the conviction that this is a call to respond. Because if he doesn't do that, then we will get the gospel wrong. We'll think the gospel is a to-do list that God is throwing down at us before he'll love us. It's not. It's the good news of how much he loves us and all that's led him to do in Jesus. And our obedience flows from that as a response to his mercy. See, the motive for Christian obedience is not the word please. We don't say to God, please, is this enough? Please, I'm a living sacrifice. Will you accept me now? No, it's thank you. Thank you that you've accepted me in Jesus. Thank you that you've forgiven me at my worst. Thank you for the life you've poured out in him that I enjoy in your spirit. Thank you. Now I want to live differently. Now I want to obey. When we grasp that our obedience as Christians is a response to God's mercy, that changes everything. It means that our obedience becomes grateful, not grudging. And we start to realise that a life with and for Jesus is the best life we could live. We don't just have to do this stuff. We find we want to do it for him. And when we see this, we discover that nothing he asks us to do will become too costly. No part of our lives off limits to him. Being a living sacrifice means living in response to God's mercy. My third reason... Why should we be living sacrifices? Because it means living for the only one worth living for. Living for the only one worth living for. Look at verse 1 again, and you'll see that we're called to a life that is holy and pleasing to God. That is our true and proper worship. But the thing we need to know about life in our world is that worship is not optional. No matter who you are, No matter what you believe, no matter your practices through life, everyone worships. Let me read something from one of my favorite novelists, David Foster Wallace. Uh, He wasn't a Christian, but in this graduation speech I'm going to quote from, he observed a profound spiritual reality when he said this, and the words will come up on the screen. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Don't know if it's possible to get that up on screen. They perfect. Have a look at it for yourself. Let those words sink in. I think they're really challenging. And what David Foster Wallace, himself not a believer, has figured out through hard experience is how crushing life is when you worship anything less than the true God. They're the things that eat us alive. Because you see, with all of the things we worship that aren't God's, when we succeed, they can't fulfill us. And when we fail, they can't forgive us. I'm sure we've all experienced that. You pour yourself out for something. You sacrifice yourself for something. And then you get it. And it's not enough. It doesn't feel like the thing it promised to be. And you realize you need to do more, give more, to get what it's promising. Or perhaps you don't succeed. You pour yourself out in pursuit of something. You sacrifice, you change yourself for something. And then you don't get it. And you're left haunted with regret. Why didn't you do enough? Why weren't you enough? Why couldn't you be what you had to be? These things hollow us out. Like David Foster Wallace says, they eat us alive but it's so different with Jesus. See, when you pour your life out for him, you don't do that in a way that empties you, but mysteriously in a way that fills you because he is the God we were made to know. And so to spend yourself for him is not actually to become poor in the end. It's to lay hold of true riches. And what about when we fail him? What about when day in, day out, we fall short of what he's calling us to be, what we wish we were? He's so forgiving, isn't he? His mercies are new every morning and they're paid for in his own blood. He's the God who's died for our sins and so he knows how to forgive us at our very worst. You see, living as a living sacrifice means worshipping the only one worth living for, the only one who won't eat you alive, the only one who can truly fulfil, the only one who can truly forgive. And worshipping him is true worship. Sacrificing yourself for him means never missing out, actually. And although the obedience he calls us to may feel like death to us in the short term, just zoom out and you'll see it's the kind of death that brings life. The kind of death he himself died. That he's leading us by the hand through into the life that never fades living for the only one worth living for. As Paul puts it in verse one, becoming holy and pleasing to God. That is a beautiful thing beyond words, discovering the deep joy and peace of knowing that your maker is delighted with you, offering your life back to the one who gives it. And so discovering in an intimacy of giving and receiving with God, something so precious, the satisfaction and joy that words themselves cannot capture. Can I ask you this evening, is that something you know for yourself? Have you experienced the delight of knowing that your maker delights in you, in Jesus? Perhaps that's something to pray into. Perhaps that's something to seek after. And the way to get it is to offer yourself to him, pour yourself out to him. Offer every part of yourself to him and hold nothing back. Just as on the cross, he held nothing back from us. One of the verses we sometimes use in the communion service is 1 Chronicles twenty nine fourteen. We use it at the time we take the offering. And it's a verse that says, all things come from you and of your own do we give you. That reality does not just apply to our financial giving. It's true about every part of us. God is the creator of all that we are, and so becoming a living sacrifice is returning all that we are to him, giving it back to him, not giving it back to him in a way that means we don't have it anymore, but giving it back to him so that we never lose it, ever, finding ourselves by losing ourselves, not so that we're lost, but lost in him and therefore truly found That's why we should be a living sacrifice. And as we come to a close, I just want to draw out three things to look out for in the coming term. Three aspects of this verse to expect in what we're going to hear. First thing I want us to see and notice as we close. Do you see Paul calls us to offer our bodies? He says that there, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means that following Jesus is a concrete thing and you do it in your body. He is not calling you to escape into the cloud or find fulfillment in the metaverse. This is not something you can do in a virtual reality. He calls you to offer your body, to follow his call in your body. Yes, your heart, mind, soul, all those interior bits we talk about. But notice the stress Paul puts on our body. Expect this term for his call to touch every part of us right, down to our bodies and what we do in it. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, our bodies become the temples of the Holy Spirit. One of the things I love to see at Highfield is people embodying their praise as they worship, lifting hands, bowing, kneeling, all of that stuff. And I don't want to say that anyone should feel forced to do those things. Inauthenticity is not what we're calling anyone to as we worship and praise. But it's a beautiful thing to lift hands, as the psalm that Hannah quoted at the start of our time called us to do. Because when we do lift our hands in praise, we're using our bodies to teach the truth of God's greatness to ourselves. This is not a truth that just lives in your brain. It's a truth that grips every bit of you, works its way out in how you live. Expect Following Jesus to touch your body, this term, and for obedience to mean obeying in your body. Second thing, do you notice how in this verse, worship is something everyone Paul is talking to is called to do. All of us are called to offer our bodies, and that's our true and proper worship. That means that all of our lives can be worship to God. In fact, all of our lives are called to become worship to God. Worship is not something just for professionals like vicars or whatever and then the rest of us are amateurs just trying to get a look in. No, worship is something all of us do for all of our lives. Your obedient parenting or teaching or doctoring or nursing or revising if you're a student at the moment, all of that is something you can offer to God as worship and he calls you to do it The Dutch theologian and prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, uh, once said this really famous little thing at at a speech. I think he was giving it maybe to students. He said, and perhaps the words will come up on the screen, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. Jesus is Lord of everything. And so he calls for everything in your life to become an offering to him. It is our privilege to offer our work, our play, our friendships, our home life, our networking, our leisure, all of it to him. And know that it's accepted to him. Know that in every part of it, the life of our mind, the life of our body, our sports, if you're into that kind of thing, our music, all of it for him for his glory, done in the most obedient way we know how, done like Jesus as we follow him. Third thing, don't expect that you can do this on your own. Don't expect that being a living sacrifice is something that we do as isolated Christian individuals. Now, it's true, of course, we do offer our bodies as individuals. That's where our worship begins. But have a look again at verse one and how Paul puts it. He doesn't say, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. could say that. He doesn't offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. See, in the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to talk about our community life in the body, the church. So this call to worship is not a call to become isolated individuals. It's something that we work out together. It's something that we need to be in community for, to even really begin to enjoy and understand. Don't think that you can do this on your own. There are two opposite dangers we can take with this verse, actually. I've often come from churches where this verse is used almost as a stick to beat Sunday church with. People saying, worship isn't something you do in church, it's something you do outside church with the rest of your life. I've heard that before. Equally possible to make the other mistake, to talk about worship in church as the only kind of worship that's ever done. To make it sound like when you come in through those doors, you sort of switch off from everything else in the world and enter this completely different mode in which none of that stuff matters. Both of those are mistakes. We're not meant to make it a competition. We're not meant to pit our scattered worship in the world against our gathered worship as a church. Both those things are being talked about in this verse, and both those things reinforce one another. In fact, I think that there are aspects of this verse that we aren't able to obey simply on our own. Because here in church is the place where we offer plural bodies as one living sacrifice. Perhaps in our response time, you should try that. Turn around, look around. Just see the obedience that God is working in your brothers and sisters. The praise that his spirit is moving from their hearts as you do. Don't expect that you can do this alone. So why be a living sacrifice? Because it means living in line with the truth. It means living in response to God's mercy. And it means living for the only one worth living for. And all that adds up to a life that truly matters, a life that will never be irrelevant because it's offered to the God who made us and everything else, and it's holy and pleasing to him.